Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, success in the music industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is a re-release of episode four, featuring Broadway singer and recording artist Shoshana Bean. I wanted to re-release this episode for some of our newer listeners that may not have heard it because I really enjoyed this one. Now, it was one of my first interviews, so cut me a break on my rookie interviewing. We all get better with stuff as we move on, right? Anyway, I think her story and her mindset when it comes to a career is super valuable for anybody in this industry. So stick around and check that out. If you have heard it, maybe consider hitting it again. I don't know. And so on to a brand new intro. I wanted to talk about time. And I know we've talked about this before, but let's be honest, we're going to talk about it again. But today I wanted to talk about the one thing that will throw you off the most when it comes to your time. And everybody does this. Planning the perfect day, also known as setting yourself up for failure. So here's the thing. Most of us don't track our time, so we don't know exactly how long things take to do. That's one problem, and we've talked about that before. So now mix that with the fact that most of us don't respect time, and you've got a recipe for frantically running around and racing to meet deadlines. So you're asking, what do I mean by respecting time? I mean, you take time for granted, and you don't anticipate things that are out of your control. You just kind of assume that there's enough time for everything to get done. So let's break down an example and you'll see what I mean. And you'll probably have an, ah, damn, I do that moment. So for the example, let's say you're a rational person that works eight hours a day, that you've dedicated your life to music and you've got a healthy work-life balance, but you also feel like you never get anything done. So let's take your schedule for a regular Tuesday and break that down. 10 a.m. to noon, you're going to finish a mix for a song that you produced. And it usually takes you about four hours, but course, you don't track your time, so you don't really know. Then at noon, you've got a lunch meeting with a future client. 1 p.m. to 3 p.m., you're back at the studio, and you're going to finish that mix. You probably need about two more hours on it. 3 p.m. to 3.30 p.m., you got to do a quick phone call with another client, and then you're going to take care of whatever notes they have on their project. 3.30 p.m. to 6 p.m., you're going to start additional production on another song. And then 6 p.m., reservations for dinner with your significant other. And so now we'll go back to reality. The reality is 6.15, you roll up to the restaurant to meet your super annoyed partner with a phone full of emails asking you about the mix you were supposed to finish. So what happened? You scheduled and time blocked the whole day down to the minute. How did you actually get nothing done? Well, it's simple. Aren't all the really good answers simple? Don't you hate that? You didn't realistically plan your day. You planned the perfect day which also involved apparently teleporting from place to place. So here's how your day actually went down. 9.40 a.m., you left for the studio, you hit some traffic, and you made a call on your drive. 
You walked into the studio still on that call and you let it carry on for a bit while the computer booted up. 10.21 a.m., you're back into that mix. But right when you open the session, you remember there's a trick you read about last night on your phone. So you pause, you download a demo of a plugin, and you try it because that sound will be perfect on this vocal. 10.33 a.m. Session is back up, and now you're starting to work 33 minutes later than expected. 11.43 a.m. You jump in the car to make to that lunch meeting that's down the street. 12.03. You've parked, and you're at the restaurant a little late, but luckily you beat your potential client so everything's fine and you get the table. 12.14. Your potential client shows up, apologizes for being so late, and the lunch meeting finally begins. 12.55. The meeting was great but you've both got to go, and on the way out, the client wants to play you his latest song in the car. You're super excited to hear it. 1.20 p.m. After walking to the car, listening to the track, and talking production ideas, you're now finally on your way back to your studio. 1.38 p.m. You're back onto your number one priority of the day, finishing that original mix. Let's note that you've worked just over an hour on it so far today. 3.30 p.m., the phone rings and you remember that you've got that production call for the other song and the other project, so you shift gears and you jump over there. 3.50 p.m., that conversation's over, but you're going to pull up the session super quick and just try that new hi-hat pattern and the synth bass idea that the artist had while it's fresh and exciting. 4.45 p.m., wow, that took a lot longer than you thought, but it sounds dope. It was worth it, right? So you send that track off to the artist. 4.52 now we're back to the original mix, the single most important thing you were supposed to do today. Finally, back on it. 5.09 p.m. The artist you just sent the production ref to calls you and raves about the changes. You try to make it as brief as possible, but she really wants to describe the music video idea to you first, so you have to stick around for that. 5.21 p.m. Back to the mix. Finally, we can do this. We can get this done. 5.40 p.m. Shit, you've got to get across town for dinner. It's time to back up the hard drive, shut down the studio, and get out the door. 5.51 p.m. You're in the car, heading to dinner. And this is how you ended your day without actually finishing a single thing. So the point of this fictitious exercise is to demonstrate the biggest mistake we all make when scheduling our time. We assume everything is perfect. We assume that there are no interruptions, no computer hiccups, nothing takes longer than it should, and that travel time is non-existent. Travel time in particular. Nobody puts time in their calendar for travel. You just try to remember to leave early enough. But meanwhile, you've budgeted your day as if that time doesn't exist. In our example, the producer budgeted four hours to mix something that would normally take him four hours, and then he lost an hour or more to traveling. See, if you respected your time properly and you allotted for things like mental transition between projects or unexpected interruptions and obviously travel time, then you'd have a far more realistic amount of work plotted into your calendar. Think about this for a moment. What's more energizing, loading your calendar up minute by minute and getting next to nothing done, or planning your day conservatively and finishing what you planned on and something extra? Inserting some buffer time and planning your day realistically will end up in you getting more wins and more checked boxes and ultimately more momentum. This week's guest is vocal powerhouse and star of the Broadway stage, Shoshana Bean. Shoshana debuted on Broadway in the original cast of Hairspray. Since then, she has performed the role of Alphaba in Wicked, and most recently Jenna in Waitress. Amid her busy Broadway career, she's managed to release four albums, all of which topped the iTunes R&B and Blues charts, and the last of which, Spectrum, debuted at number one on the Billboard Jazz chart. 
Her newest EP, Sella, will be released just a few days after this interview and will be available everywhere by the time you're listening. So welcome to the show, Shoshana Bean. Hey, pal. Hey, how are you? You didn't insert yourself into my bio. You know, you've worked <laughs> on those you've worked on those chart-topping projects. So, you know. <laughs> Her chart-topping EP can learn that. and album engineered by uh, myself. <laughs> That's what I was waiting for. Amazing. So thanks for joining us. I just want to say this is kind of a, a weird one. I feel like every time I'm pitching a gig that's like a big singer, if I if I say that I know you or that we've worked together, it's like a done deal. <laughs> How did you have you end up like the singer singer? Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you. Thank you. Every, everybody knows Shoshana. Oh, that's so, kind. Uh, I just wanted to kind of just run through your career because although we know each other and we've worked together a lot, there's a lot about your career I don't know about. We haven't talked about these things. Uh-huh. So how'd you get started? Were you like a singing like five-year-old? I was like a singing two-year-old, yeah. I think it was like, I mean, just I really honestly came out this way. Um, just naturally performing around the house, naturally turning on records, playing dress up, requiring everyone's attention for whatever performance was about to take place. And my mom finally was like, we got to do something with this. And, and she was a dancer. So her first inclination was to put me into dance classes. So I started in tap classes and then ballet. And then, or when I was around six years old, I actually auditioned for this like children's performing troupe in my hometown of Olympia, Washington. And that was my first like real performance experience, singing, dancing, and we'll say lightly acting. Um, and then uh, once we, my parents split and I moved to Portland, Oregon, which, you know, in comparison to Olympia, Washington, then and now is like a big city. So uh, moving to Portland just made available to me so many other opportunities theatrically. And I think while theater was like the first love and the first um, experience in performing and singing, it really became an, more of just like an outlet or just the, the way for me to be able to sing. You know, back then we didn't have reality shows. We didn't have, um, I mean, we were, I was not aware of Berklee College of Music. Like there weren't, you couldn't major in pop star. You couldn't, you know, uh, we didn't have YouTube. We didn't have social media. We couldn't access music in the way that people can now. So, you know, going from zero to Mariah Carey, it was like the only way for me to pursue this is to, you know, keep sticking with musical theater because I can go to college for this and I can, you know, perform this way in high school. I can be in the school musicals. Like there just weren't a lot of outlets for singing and songwriting and pop music um, as we know it today. But when Mariah Carey's first album came out, I was like, this is what, this is what I want to do. Like I just had never really heard, we just hadn't really heard pop music that way yet, you know, um, nor had we really heard vocals like that yet. Uh, so yeah, I would say it was around that time that a friend of mine said, I think we were in junior high and a friend of mine was like, basically insinuating that like, that's what she was going to do for a living was like make records and be a singer. And I hadn't, it hadn't made sense to me yet that that was an option. Uh, but at that point I was like, well, if she's doing it, I'm doing it. Cause you know, in my mind, <laughs> I was the best singer on the planet. So if she can decide to be a singer for a career, then I'm deciding and, um, you know, again, like I said, going into college, it, um, in, I'm from a family where it's not an option not to go to college. So, uh, you know, I decided to 
it was actually my mom who was like, are you sure you don't want to pursue your love of performing? Are you sure you don't want to go on and at least attempt to, to make this your profession? If it doesn't work out, you can always come home. You can always major in business and take over your dad's store. But like in the meantime, do you want to like take a crack at this? And again, it just wasn't in my mind that this was a something I needed schooling for. Do I need school to be in musicals? I've already done it in high school. Like it didn't make sense to me that there was more to learn or that again, I wasn't the best on the planet. So yeah, college was a very rude awakening for the big fish from the small pond. It was a very rude awakening. So that's the long version of the humble beginnings. <laughs> well, that's awesome that that your mom kind of gave you that opportunity to to push off. I mean, so many so many people that end up in music, they have a fight, you know, that doesn't involve that support, but I think it's so important in the in the arts. Whatever it is, painting or acting or music, it's like it's daunting and it's really difficult and you need I that. I agree. Yeah. Was uh, Portland, what was the, the the theater scene was obviously better than Olympia, Washington, but does it have stuff going on now? Is it, you know, a good place to start out? Um, I wouldn't say start out, but I would say that if you are from there, uh, there is a wealth of opportunity for sure. Um, I wouldn't say that it's a launching pad for New York City by any means, but they do have great regional theater and great community theater. Um, and some really great, I mean, and by the grace of God, remaining arts programs in some of the high schools out there. I mean, you know that the arts programs have just taken such horrible hits over the years um, because of the budget cuts, but there are some schools that are still thriving a little bit. And I'm lucky to be able to work with some of these kids with this benefit that I do every year to raise money for the arts department. Um, so I know that there's some great talent and still some great programs there. So I was lucky because I was at a time where this was all just thriving. And I was lucky because I had a mom who loved the arts and she took me to all the tours that came through town. And she, she was the smart one who put me into acting class, which then, you know, propelled me into my first couple professional productions in Portland. So, you know, in, in reflecting on all this, I'm always like, I, I was very lucky to have a mother who was incredibly supportive. She was not pushy. She was not a stage mom. She just offered it up and was like, just, you know, this is an option. Um, so I'm, I'm very grateful and I am very well aware that, you know, I get tons of emails and DMs and all kinds of things from kids who are like, my parents think this is a joke. Like, what do I do? So I get that it's, it's a hard enough profession without support, you know? So I, I I'm, oh yeah endlessly grateful for, for how lucky I was and am. That's great. So, so then off to, to music school, it was, it was Berkeley College of Music, right? No, University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, Bachelor oh, okay. of Fine Arts in musical theater. I legitimately majored in musical theater. Ah, okay. And then from there, where to? Straight to New York. Okay. And so what was, uh, what was it like getting to New York for the first time? Had you been there before you moved? Hopefully. Yes, I had had a couple visits. Well, we have family from out here. So over the course of my childhood, we had visited out east um, multiple times to, to visit family. And I don't know, there's just an um, an energy that, that comes with being a New Yorker that I feel like I always just inherently had, whether it's because we have family from out there or it's just in my blood. I don't know, but uh, it, it it always felt like home to me. It never felt like the daunting big city, if that makes sense. So... Um, I had had a couple visits in my childhood and I had had a couple visits during college because there were a couple auditions that presented themselves that I had to fly to New York for, one of which was rent. 
So I was somewhat familiar. And the cool thing about my school at that time, and still, I think is still a cool thing about these conservatories is you get to know the upperclassmen and they graduate and go on to New York. So you always feel like you have a landing pad and a community here when you finally arrive um, upon graduating. So I'd been a couple times. We did our senior showcase, which means we came here with this show. We performed for casting directors and agents and all that stuff. So you know, I came here with a plan. I knew where I was living. I had a little nest egg. I knew who my agents were going to be. Like they set us up really well. And, um, and also like over-prepared us for what we were coming into. Like our education was so comprehensive that we got here with way more skills than were actually necessary to (laughs) succeed in this business, but we were over-prepared for sure. That's amazing. I feel like that is such a rarity. I mean, a lot of people there's so many different programs for music, whether it's performance or recording. They, I don't think they get prepared properly. They get an amazing education for sure. And you meet a lot of people that you'll probably hopefully work with for the rest of your life. But I don't think I've met anybody that sounded like they were prepared like that. Well, I think so, prepared for they, what? They need a lot of credit in that department. Well, wait, let me rephrase. Cause when you say it like that, like, you know, we, I think experience is the best teacher. So you can take classes and you can learn the things, but nothing is like being on the battlefield, right? So nothing was ever going to be a better education than actually getting here and doing the work. However, the first part is auditioning. The first part is presenting yourself and being your own best brand ambassador and, you know, being a business person and hustling. And that was what we were taught well to do. Be prepared, represent yourself well, you know, just to know how to show up to then be able to get the opportunity. And then once you get the opportunity, that is something that is a continuous learning experience um, that no one really can prepare you for. You know, you can know to come with your pencil and your pen and your recording device and show up early. You can know those skills, but it takes it takes time to learn to navigate people and being a team player and um, how to, I don't know, stand up for yourself and be a good business person. Those kinds of things take a while. But the, the the skill that we needed that was the most important when we got here was how to audition and how to hustle. And I think that we were, and how to manage time, you know? Um, and I think we were well prepared for that. That's amazing. So where, how'd your auditions start? Do you remember your first audition? Oh gosh, no. Uh, but I think that one of my first auditions, okay, I'll say that what I can remember is I went to an open call for a musical called The Civil War. And this was for a casting director named Dave Clemens. And I went in and I sang my butt off. I have my my 16 bar cut, the one that I always used. And I did it. And he was like, let me hear something else. And I sang another one. And he walked me out of the room, which was not common. Usually they have you sing your 16 bars. Maybe they ask you for something else. And then they're like, thank you. They don't often engage, okay, in banter. So Dave Clemens walked me to the door and he was like, listen, I'm going to be honest with you. You're incredible. There is nothing for you in this show, but I'm not going to forget about you. Um, and then I think probably a week later or something, they called me in for, they were casting this off, 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 off Broadway revival of Godspell. And he called me in and I auditioned and had a series of callbacks. And that was my first job in the city was this off, off Broadway production that then moved off Broadway and then, uh, tuckered out. But it was like a year in some of my life. Like it was my first gig and I got it like two months into being in the city. So it was a, it was a pretty big gig. Um, and it was a great cast and it was a really special experience. So that, I would say that that's the most memorable first audition because, you know, I showed up not knowing, I mean, you come from college and you're like, every role is for, I am right for every role. I played 60 year olds in college. I played 20 year olds. (laughs) I'm prepared. I can play anything you need. And you get here and you quickly find out like, 
you actually have a type and they don't actually see you in certain ways. But, you know, at that point I was still showing up and not typing myself out. I was letting the business type me out, which they will do very quickly. And, uh, (laughs) and so I was still like really bold and confident and had this fire. And so I had showed up to this audition and, and been acknowledged like personally by this guy that he was like, I'm not going to forget. And he didn't. So that's probably my most memorable early audition. That's awesome. So that was your first show. And then your first Broadway moment was related to Hairspray. Yeah, years later. I think we did Godspell in 99. Yeah, we did Godspell in 99 and 2000. Well, years later, two years later. It took two years till I got my debut, which felt like an eternity, you know? Because again, you come to the city thinking you're right for everything. And so everything I thought was going to be my Broadway debut. Um, So two and a half years felt like a really long time to wait for your debut, you know? (laughs) Obviously it was nothing, but at the time... Yeah, I, I know that feeling where you just you're like waiting. When, yeah. when's, it, when's it coming? Is this it? Is this the one? Is there? Um, so you have to pardon my ignorance a little bit. So you have you have understudies, uh-huh. right? And then you have the the main cast performer. Uh, yes, and depending on the main cast performer, you also have a standby. So like Tracy in Hairspray and Alphaba in Wicked. If the role is substantial enough. Uh, they have a standby, which means that that person lives in a dressing room off stage. They don't have a role in the show. Their only job is if something happens to this lead character, they put on the clothes and they come on stage. They're the first person to go on if something happens to the lead. Then an understudy is someone that is in the cast. So in Hairspray, I was an ensemble member, one of the council kids, and I understudied three other roles in the show. Uh, which meant like if Tracy, I was one of Tracy's understudies. So if her standby didn't go on, then I went on, if that makes sense. Okay. So the, the understudy is learning the part basically, and is the third, the third one to come in. Yeah. They're the, they're the guy on the bench. Okay. What's the, uh, what's the progression like from, you know, becoming a cast member, then are you invited to understudy? And then What's the hierarchy like? It's kind of part of your track when you get the gig. So like when I auditioned for Hairspray, I was auditioning for an ensemble part, but they also asked me to sing Tracy material. So I knew I was also would be in a, 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 be considered as an understudy for Tracy. So when I got the contract and I got the job, it said ensemble understudy Tracy Velma Prudy. That's two of the mothers and Tracy. So it's really just built in the way that they sort of cast a show. They build in who they cast and how you can be versatile as an ensemble member to understudy multiple parts. So being an understudy is harder because I had to learn my track as an ensemble member, two mothers and Tracy. So essentially there were four different tracks going through my mind. uh, And I had to be ready to do any one of them uh, at any moment when I was in Hairspray. Then when I went over to Wicked, I was just Elphaba standby, which meant I lived in the dressing room upstairs and I just wrote music and knit sweaters and watched TV unless and until something happened and I had to come down and go on, <laughs> you know? Okay, all right. Okay, so then um, how long How long was the Hairspray uh, performance for you? I was on the Hairspray journey for two years, exactly. I'm kind of a two-year limit gal. Like at two years, my creativity starts to feel stifled and I'm like, it's time to move on. Like I could have stayed in Hairspray for as long as I wanted, but... Um, I just felt like this was great. I came here, I did what I came to do, and now I really want to go focus on making music. And there was an opportunity down in Florida to work with 
some new record label and they were like connected to Scott Storch somehow. And Storch was like, you know, everything in the early 2000s. And so I was like, I'm hurling myself, you know, into their way to make them see me. I am going to make the next, you know, big hip hop R&B album. (laughs) And so I moved down to Florida. Um, Yeah, I felt like I had saved up enough money and I felt like I I was starting to get not bored, but just like I just artistically was not as fulfilled anymore. So that's always for me when it's time to move on. Yeah, I find uh, I, I have a lot of I've done a lot of things for two to two to three years myself. <laughs> <laughs> that's various, the limit. Yeah. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Uh, what did you, so you, you'd finally, you'd made your Broadway breakthrough and you're on Hairspray. Did you have like a gut moment where you're like, I have to go do my thing. I'm going to go to Florida. Did you have a fear that Broadway might not be there when you came back from Florida? I think I didn't care. Cause I felt like, I felt like I had established myself enough Um, And I always move towards things with a healthy amount of fear because I feel like if there's fear present, then you're moving in the right direction because you're doing something you've never done before. Um, And that's why you're afraid because you're not quite sure how it's going to go or how you're going to, you know, if you're faking it till you make it. So I always like to have a healthy amount of fear, but I also felt like I had been in the city long enough and done enough and to, to feel like I really had a place there, to feel like I really was a part of the community and really had made myself known to anyone who needed to know who I was and what I was capable of. And so it felt like a safe time to, to leave for a while, knowing they know who I am. They know how to find me. If I'm needed, they will come get me. And they did. Four months later, I got a call to come back and stand by for Adina in Wicked. Um, and I was like, that I can do. I had, I mean, I had written so much music and made, laid so many demos in Florida I was like, and, and Fort Lauderdale, Miami is so easy to get to from New York. It's such a quick flight that I was like, you know, I get a day and a half off every week. Well, kind of two days, not really. But I, that's an easy flight down to work for a day, come back. Like, I'm standing by. I'm not working every day. I'm just there. So it felt like it was, you know, it all worked out perfectly, honestly. But at the time, I, I definitely thought like, you know, I just, I felt like I had given three years to musical theater and was really happy with where I had come and I wanted to give that kind of time and attention to that still like intense dream of being like a recording artist, you know? Well, the, going back to what you mentioned about, you know, having a healthy amount of fear, I, I feel like I agree with that completely. And I think anybody that has made a big step or a big change has felt that. And so many people fight it. Yeah. People just need to accept that when you're doing something new or you're, you're leaving a job or you're you know, quitting your band and starting your solo, whatever it is, like you're going to be scared shitless. Yeah. You just have to do it. So totally everybody to take note. Yeah. If you're waiting for it to go away, if you're waiting for fear sometimes. Oh, all the time. I mean, even still every, almost every day I'm like, what are you afraid of right now? And how can you lean into that? Because I just feel like if you're waiting a, for the fear to be gone, that's just not 
it's just not logical. There's always going to be fear. So I think it's just feeling the fear and doing it anyway. It's not waiting. Courage, what did the, what's the quote? Courage is not the absence of fear, but what you do in the face of it. Like it's not waiting for all ducks to be in a row. It's not, uh, you know, being practical or realistic. I've logical. I've just never been that type of person. I've always been like, this is what my gut is telling me to do. It may sound ridiculous, uh, but I'm going. So, yeah. Well, do you, do you find that when you've taken those dives and you've, you've had that fear that when you come out the other side, you're just super energized and you're like, feel invincible? Oh yeah. I mean, I've, I don't think I ever feel invincible, but I definitely <laughs> have my biggest growth spurts when I lean into, to the fear. I think the, the biggest one that's the most recent and the most, um, the most transformative was when we made Spectrum. Uh, I, you know, David had sort of presented this idea of making a big band record to me. And my first instinct was like, that is going to be so expensive. I'll never be able to afford it. Like, how will we raise that kind of money? And I had a conversation with a friend who was like, I don't know what world you're living in, but that's not a lot of money. And I'm like, in my mind, we've made like $20,000, $30,000 records. So to triple, quadruple a budget to me sounded insane, you know? Um, and I just, I thought no one's going to, why? No, how? And I just did it anyway. And it was, we got to operate on a level we'd never operated on before. I learned so much. It was so much more fulfilling. I think that's the thing. It's not an invincibility, but it's a pride and a fulfillment because you, you leaned into something you didn't know how you were going to make happen. And you did like you, it's like, I took a chance on myself and you cannot come out of taking a chance on yourself without feeling transformed and incredibly empowered and incredibly proud. Um, sorry for the <laughs> circus of dogs out there. I apologize. People have dogs and phones. They'll, they'll understand. Yeah. I, I want to talk about spectrum. I guess we could talk about spectrum now. Um, and then we'll go back to like continue. Sure. Sorry. I didn't mean to jump, but it's the most recent huge risk that I feel like I took, you know? Well, it was great. I mean, I, everybody, you know, I was involved in that record and it was super fulfilling and everybody you could tell was like very heavily invested in, you know, it was great. I mean, we mixed that record for <laughs> months, <laughs> such a long time, Travis. Oh my yeah. God. Your dedication. You're, that's when I knew you were a real one. I was like, he's not like giving up on this. You were as invested as I was and it's my freaking project. No, it was, it was awesome. It was, so how did, how did that project come about? You you said you wanted to do a big band record. David pushed back a little bit. No, I didn't, didn't really want to do. No, David oh, wanted it was the to other do. Way around. Yes, yes. Oh. He's always like eyes wide, big, and I'm like mm, that's a little dangerous. I just sort of had this inspiration to make sort of a classic record, like some more standards and more. Um, you know, I thought it was a record I'd make when I was really old to like dip back into the American songbook. And the second I presented the possibility of this idea, he was like, I think it should be a big band record. And I know exactly who will get to arrange it. And, you know, and then, and then it, it took months for us to like hash through all the details and whittle it down to like, how do we make a big band record that actually makes sense for me? As opposed right. to me trying to be like swinging through these, you know, American songbook tunes. Like we picked from you know, soul. And we picked from more Americana, like more current classic Americana, like, you know, um, Aretha stuff. And then, and then the Beatles and, um, and then some originals as well. I just, we, we tried to make it make sense. I needed it to make sense for me. It didn't make sense for me to jump from 
you know, like a bluesy acoustic EP to a 18 piece big band record, full arrangements, you know what I mean? But, um, so he was the one who thought it would be a good idea. And my pushback was like, how can we make it make sense for me? And he was so patient. It took months for us to sort through like whittling down the list of potential covers and talking about what story I wanted to tell and how to write originals that could even begin to stand toe to toe with some of the greatest songs, you know, with a little help from my friends, Never Loved a Man. These are some of the greatest songs um, in history, in my opinion. So I was like, how do you be so bold as to write your own tunes and put them on the same record as these monster Next covers? These hits. Right. So it was a lot of, I, he had to do a lot of like coercing and, and sort of like, uh, what do you call it? Affirming and, and bolstering and, and writing my tale to get these songs written and stuff. I was really resisting. And then again, the budget, I think that was my biggest concern because my albums are always crowdfunded. And I was like, I, I just don't know a way or world where people are going to fund this kind of a budget. And man, it happened fast and they went beyond what um, I was able to do more and than I had planned on because we raised even more than that. So yeah. That's amazing. What, what I was kind of reading out of that is that the artist in you wanted to make sure that everything about that record was authentic to what you wanted it to be. Yeah. It needed to and make that, sense. That it felt like it was you. Yes. Yes, correct. And I, go ahead. I was going to say that I, I feel like so many people, you know, they, they make a lot of music and they, they'll explore different genres. And I think there's so much music out there. The only thing that a listener can grab onto is like authenticity and the honesty that the, that the artist has. I mean, otherwise, two pop songs are the same song, but for some reason, one of them, one of them is really magical. What is, what is it? Well, it's that person really believed that. And, you know, I think that's, that's something to, to take note of that you were unwilling to just bang out a big band record. You wanted to make sure that it was Shoshana's big band record. Yeah. It had so. to make sense. That's the, that's the sort of like musical theater nerd in me and, and the person who tries at every turn to, to be as authentic as possible. And part of being authentic means acknowledging the fears and pushing through them anyway. That's a, a massive part of it for me. I don't look at authenticity as necessarily always telling your truth and giving people a piece of your mind and like share, bearing your soul. I look at authenticity as like, what is, what are you afraid of and what are you doing about it anyway? You know, as I said, as we said previously, but um, yeah. And the musical theater nerd in me is always, and maybe you'll recall, we were just recently mixing the EP and David had all these sounds in there and, and, you know, the build was happening earlier in the song. And to me, it's, it's what story is being told. Like, what is the arc here? You know, where's the beginning, middle and end? What story are we telling is so important to me. And whether that's the entire body of work that is an album or whether it's a single song and the way that it builds and the way that the different instruments are having a conversation or are participating in the conversation, the story is important to me or whether it's how the vocal is being laid, you know, um, the musical theater girl in me is like, what's the story? Right. <laughs> so Spectrum, you released as an independent artist and ended up number one Billboard Jazz. Obviously, that probably, maybe that was a goal that you had said out loud that you wanted to have a number one jazz record or? I definitely did, I didn't. Guess, <laughs> my question is, obviously you wanted to have a successful debut. Did you know that it was going to be as successful as that? Maybe you put that in the universe, maybe you didn't. Are there any steps that you took as an independent artist that you feel like made a big difference in that debut hitting so hard? 
Hmm, that's a really good question. I think there are a couple factors. I think one, being a number one billboard artist, of course, it was always the pop charts in my imagination and manifesting, like that image uh, of that yellow spot, you know, um, is right. was always part of my dreams of my fantasies. It was not the jazz charts, nor was it the blues charts, but it was, I always, in my, you know, whatever, it's a vision board or my, you know, it, it was always part of that. So part of me feels like it was a, a little manifestation event, right? But um, I don't, I, no, there, you can't, I've never been a person who's like, and, and maybe this is where I fall short and fail. Uh, where I'm not like, this is going to be a smash. I mean, you and I have talked about this, I think, at, po- at different points. Like the people, it's not always the most talented people who win. It's the people who really believe that their shit is the best thing out there. They are, they stand behind. Oh, yeah. It could be garbage, but they are so committed and so sure about what they're putting out there. They convince the rest of us that maybe there's something to it. And I have always lacked that ability to stand so firmly behind myself and the work that I make. I second guess a lot. I have a lot of insecurities around the things I make. I do it anyway, right? But that doesn't mean that I'm going to walk into an, a record label, slam my CD down and be like, this is this is the hottest shit of 2020. You need to get me spins. I mean, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? I lack that tenacity. <laughs> However, I will say, so your question was how as an independent artist, uh, it wasn't an intention to 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 chart. I mean, it's always a thought, right? But I think um, that I think this was the most successful album thus far of my four projects. A because I think it I think it was the best in in the in the in the totality of it. The quality of the sound, the quality of the vocal performance, the, the arrangements, the mixing, the production, all of it was so carefully curated and such a great solid team. Plus the magic of it all. I mean, so many beautiful, like synchronistic things from from recording at East West to, you know, um, there's just so much history and so many personal connections to the music. And it just all was very divinely, divinely curated. And I think that that shows, I think there was like a maturity to it. And I think I'm four albums, four albums deep, you know, four projects deep. It's like you build a following over these years. It took 10 years to really... 10 years-ish, yeah. 10 years to really like, you know, and, and it's and it's brick by brick, stone by stone. It is not, it was, for me, it was not, you know, it wasn't a fast build by any means. And each project just, just expands the territory a little more. And Spectrum was, a, it was a big, big, big expansion. It, it, it really changed things. But again, I really believe not only was the quality great, but it was because I took a chance on myself and I believed that I and and the the album and the music and the it, that I was worth it, you know, that it deserved it. And so the world responded in kind, I guess. I think yeah, the the brick by brick building I think makes, you know, milestones like that kind of feel even more more fulfilling. Totally. You know, like, oh, I, I I built this whole house with my hands. Yeah, it's man. Great. Totally. Yeah. That that's amazing. So uh, you were talking about, you know, Spectrum being like, you're taking a big chance on yourself. Going back, let's see if we can connect some dots between uh, Wicked and and Spectrum. Are there are there other moments in your career where you're like, this decision was huge or this decision was a massive setback, but I didn't let it stop me? Are there any anything like that that you ran across? Oh, yeah, I think all the time. I think it's hard not to. I, I I've never been, I've never really had a manager 
I've never been with a label. So every decision is mine to make, which is at once completely liberating and, and makes you feel like the possibilities are endless to also terrifying because you never know if strategically you're doing the right thing for yourself. You never know when you're saying no, if you're really making a mistake or if you're just, you know, if you're so inspired to put something out, if it was, you know me, I'm the most impatient. When I get an idea, like I want to move, I'm coming over tomorrow, Travis. We're do- like, I move fast when I have inspiration. And sometimes I move too fast and I pay for it. And we end up having to recall and remix. Like, you know, I'm so insistent on getting it done that I miss steps along the way or I'm too hasty um, and in hindsight, I'm like, if we would have taken one more week with that, we might have, you know. So, I mean, I think I think there's no way of knowing if any of my right turns or left turns, if I had taken a different direction, there's no way of knowing if I'd be anywhere different today. You know, I think, um, would I do things differently? Maybe little things here and there, but I, there's no way of knowing if, if if it would have ended up any differently. And so I have to just stand by the decisions I made and know that it was all, that it's all the way that it was designed to be, you know, but, um, but it's all, it's all, I always second guess, you know, that, (laughs) you know what I mean? You've been in the room with Wheeler. I'm like, absolutely. That is that the right, is that the right decision? Do you hear what I hear? No. Yeah. Do that. Definitely do that. Are you sure? (laughs) Like I second guess everything, but in the end, I think that the majority of my decisions have been made with my gut and, and every album was a huge risk. Every album was taking a chance on myself, taking a chance that anyone wanted to hear it. And each album unintentionally was another left turn. None of these albums sound alike, none of them. Now we're about to put out the fifth project, mini project, but like, you know, none of them sound like anything, you know, genre wise anyway. The only consistency is my voice, I guess. And even that, has morphed. So every single one of them, I think is a, is a huge risk. They cost a lot, one. And two, uh, you just never know what people are going to think. And a lot of those years, it was, um, it was feeling like they don't want me to make my own music. They want me to come back to Broadway. They want me to just go do what we love you for and what we know you to do. And it took a long time for them to understand, like, I can do both guys. Like I can, you know, now the industry wants you to do everything. They want you to make movies and TV and records and and be on Broadway and uh, and have a podcast and your own lipstick brand. And you know what I mean? You need to be a jack of all now. But back when I was starting out on Broadway, they didn't want that. They needed you to really stick, stay in your lane. So it was a big risk for me to say, like, I'm leaving New York. I'm leaving Broadway. I just played the biggest leading role there is for a woman on the New York stage. And I'm out of here. Like, I got to go do this other thing. And, you know, that was that was a big risk for sure to walk away from somewhere that I had worked really hard to get to establish a place for myself in and then just say goodbye and move to L.A. Did you meet resistance from people in the theater world? Did you have a lot of people saying, don't do this? No one said don't do it. But a lot of people are kind of like, well, when are you coming back or like? don't you miss theater or we miss you in theater? Like I've never really had a situation where anyone's has a huge influence on what I do. (laughs) Um, I'm pretty independent and strong willed. So I don't remember anyone saying this isn't a good idea. 
But I do remember people wanting me to pump the brakes a little bit. I had a manager at the time who was just like really not delivering. I was ready to move forward with the music making. And that's how I ultimately ended up being an independent artist. Like I was waiting on a manager and I just kept writing and recording music in the meantime. And then all of a sudden I was like, I have an album. F this dude, I'm putting out an album. Like, why am I sitting on this? You know? Um, And then from there, I just was like, well, now I know how to do it alone. Why don't I just keep doing it alone until and unless someone is interested? So people were probably like, just can you wait until we're ready? And then other people were just like, "Mm, we love the record. When are you coming back to Broadway? And that was probably the most hurtful thing was just to hear people acknowledge what I'm doing, but also be like, but come do this other thing. Almost looking at it like like the side his side adventure. Like, okay, yep. did you have fun yes. for that six months there? Okay, well, yes. there's work over here when you, you want to just come back over here now. That's what it felt like, yeah, for sure. What did you return to Broadway to do? Was there a show that brought you back? 14 years later, which was last year. I you've bounced around and you've done things multiple places and cities and stuff, but... Yeah, but never Broadway. You back it's on the theater stage. 14 years later, which was last year, which was Waitress. I was gone for 14 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. How how was how long was waitress? That was six ish months. For me, yeah, just about a little under. Yeah, they do a quick turnaround over there. They like to keep rotating their leading ladies to keep people, or they did uh, like to keep rotating their ladies out to keep people coming back and back and back. It was a very smart casting and marketing technique because it kept them alive for a lot longer than probably they would have. Um, so yeah, I had a great. Okay. I had a good chunk of a run. It was so great and the perfect thing to bring me back. That's awesome. Obviously, you're in New York right now. You probably keep in touch with a lot of people. What's the, with the pandemic, what's the Broadway feeling like right now? Are people like kind of wondering like with live musicians and touring, touring people? Oh, yeah. Is I mean, there, I think... I guess, I guess you know, is, is there a plan to people, <laughs> what, are, what are they doing? Well, you know, they keep sort of like dangling a carrot of like, they've continued to extend whatever the like predicted date is to reopen theaters, right? So first it was September, then it was January 21, and now they're talking spring 21. And I just really feel like there's no way to predict. And so I think that the temperature is just really fear-based because... You know, I'm I and and a couple other artists are lucky enough to have other ways to generate income and still work by doing virtual shows or by selling merch or by, um, you know, teaching or, you know, some people do film and television as well, which that's starting to open up um, for people to to work again. But as far as our theaters and as you know, as far as like live touring music I I know that they're finding interesting ways to pivot. I've seen some cool outdoor setups over in Europe, some festival situations that are like safely done and look really cool. But I don't, I can't even begin to predict what our future looks like in this country, honestly. Um, And so, you know, I mean, literally today is a day of action to call senators and ask them to fund a bill, uh, to pass a bill or a relief bill to, to help out artists, musicians, and everyone who's employed in uh, as art arts workers because who knows how long it's going to be and it's it's terrifying and it's not even just us as performers who are affected by the Broadway closures it's costume and it's it's uh, the the stage crews and the musicians and the offices that do the marketing I mean it's ticketing it's concierge I mean it's just like a, it's a multi billion dollar industry that is just like halted it's insane it's, it's truly insane. 
awful. It, it's like, it's really hard to comprehend. I mean, even just yeah. thinking about thinking about it. You, and like you said, it, it's a trickle down effect. You forget about the person that's four jobs yeah. removed from the one that's singing, but that person's not working either, you know? Yeah. It's, it's so. massive. It's a, it, it employs so many people. Um, yeah. And it's super weird to just like even drive through the theater district and see all these theaters dark. Like it's just, it's not, it's never happened in history. You yeah. know, we've had blackouts like twice and Broadway had to shut down. But even then it's like, it's like, you know, pulling a piece of meat from a lion's mouth. They're like, we're not canceling the show tonight. Um, and uh, yeah, this is crazy. It's definitely crazy and scary and sad and all the things. Well, on on a uh, we'll switch to a lighter note. But, <laughs> um, so we're kind of we'll kind of work our way in closing. But you've done my understanding is you do a lot of session singing as well. I mean, I know there's a lot of there's a lot of people out there that probably are trying to do one of the things that you've succeeded at, and you're, <laughs> you seem to be doing like four or five things. And we're not even going to get into like acting, which you're getting into as well. But um, uh, it's t- just. Touch on the session singing. Is there anything that got you in the door there? I know a lot of people would just love to be doing some of the demo sessions or or backing sessions, all, all the, the session work that you do. Yeah, I'm not really sure. It's all relationships, you know? I think the other thing that I learned very early on in my career is like you show up to the job and you knock it out of the park and everyone's looking for the person who's going to do that. And so you do that and you do that consistently Uh, and the word gets around, you know, I can't remember what my sort of like foot in, in LA was. I think it was probably working on the hairspray movie session, which made me meet the music supervisors. I can't remember what got me sort of in the door, but you know, I got connected to some of the, um, the vocal contractors who hire the singers for movie and TV sessions and, I kind of started that way, but I, I kind of blew it up too, because I didn't want that to be my career. I didn't want to, you know, be singing in a booth. I wanted to be on the screen or on the stage or making my own stuff. You know, it's, it's, it's a dangerous place. I've seen so many extraordinary singers get so comfortable with having somewhat consistent work and getting paid really well for it that they forget that, they had a, a dream to be a solo artist or whatever else. They get comfortable. Again, they they just don't want to be pressing into that awful feeling of fear. And so they stay comfortable. And that scared the crap out of me. I remember I was like sort of consistently working on a certain TV show. And I was like, I got to, I got to, I got to blow this up. Cause I, I can't, this can't be me. I can't do this. Uh, so yeah. I blew it up. And, um, <laughs> Yeah, I think it's just consistently showing up. And now I just have great relationships with some, you know, composers. And and so I'm lucky that that sometimes when they have new work, I'm, I'm their first call to, you know, so to, to lay the demos for some cool stuff. But it's That's relationships. The, um, I, there's, there's been a thread throughout uh, our conversation. And then also just knowing you and knowing other people in town. A lot of people know you. Do you feel like networking is has been a strength for you, or you're just like I mean you're obviously a very personable person. You're friendly. You like to you like to make friends. <laughs> have those things helped you? They must have helped. I think it's a combination of a couple of things. Uh, I don't necessarily think I'm a great whatever the the definition of networking would be. Um, I think I resisted that for a long time because it felt 
yucky to me. It felt like a means to an end. It felt opportunistic. It It felt manipulative. And once I realized that all networking is, is really just connecting with people with no agenda, but just like human to human connection. But again, I still won't say, I wouldn't say that networking is my strong suit. I would say that I just try to show up to the job and knock it out of the park and be dependable and consistent in that way and be, uh, put my stamp on things so that I know that what I do, there aren't many other people that can do it the way I do it. But also I think it's like, I went to New York, I established myself there, um, with some really great projects and things and recordings in the theater world. Then I moved to LA and I really immersed myself in that musicians and, and singers community out, out there and learned so much by being a part of that community and met a lot of people. And I think, you know, between that and social media and, you know, being in this business for almost 20 years, I think it's a combo platter of just trying to really, again, the more authentic, the more definitive you are, the more identifiable and unique you are. I've never, I've really tried hard not to be like anyone else. I've really tried hard not to diminish myself or hide or slide into someone else's lane. So I think it's probably a function of all of those things. Um, but yeah, I, I've, I've learned in the past few years how important relationships are and, um, and just to be dependable and, and show up and do a great job. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) It sounds like good advice. It sounds like being, being a real you, whoever you are, right. 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 You or anybody like being the real you and, and being a hard worker and being dependable, it goes a long way to, you know, people will share if they know somebody's good at something, they'll, they'll share that name. They'll be like, Oh, you oh, need yeah. Shoshana to sing that. And, uh, and they know that you're going to show up and you're going to be a great vibe in the room. You're going to get the job done professionally. And then somebody else is going to share your name somewhere else. Yeah. So that's how it works. And no, also you nailed it. The last piece of that is the fact that like, also, I think in the past couple of years, I've realized like my favorite part of the job is the people I get to work with. And if, if this time has taught us nothing else, it's that I miss working with people. Like it's not, I can sing by myself all day long. I can now record myself. I don't even have to call you anymore. I can actually record myself by myself. Uh, but it's, you know, it's just, it's, there really is a special thing about the way we all work together and the collaboration within that. So, um, the other piece of that is just like really the connection with people and enjoying that. And, and, um, yeah, that's another piece of, I think what adds to the, the relationships is just knowing that like, this is, we're doing, we're in this together. Yeah. Well, a good, you know, a good partnership is not twice as good. If you have one partner, it's, you know, 10 times as good. Correct. That's Otherwise, a good way of saying it. Why, why, you know, why partner up? I like so, that. Um, well, in closing, I like to put, uh, put people on the spot and ask them a question. Can I, can I? Of course. Spot? I love these things. So what is, uh, what is currently, whether it's a music goal or a personal goal, what's like your current like big goal? And do you know like what you're going to do as soon as we're done with this podcast to like go that way? Ooh. I mean, I think the next, I have a couple things, you know what I mean? From personal to professional, I have like a show that I would love to produce on Broadway. Um, you know, I, I have a couple little things, but I think the thing that is 
I think we need to, I, th- I think I need to make another, a full record. Like we have this tiny EP coming out in a couple of days, but uh, I would like to make a full record. And it's been a long time since I wrote a full record. You know, Spectrum was only three originals and all covers. So I've gotten away with hiding behind other people's music for many years now. So I think it's really diving into, and it's uncomfortable for me. And I'm afraid because some part of me has convinced myself that I can't write anymore. So that's going to be a big one for me is just like putting in the time to, and also to see like, what is the authentic story for me to tell right now? You know, what, what, what do I want to say again, back to the story. So, um, my big goal for, for the rest of this year anyway, is to really commit to carving out that time to sort of open up that channel again, to receive the information of like, whatever it is that's next for me to say, cause I'm not the same person I was last time I wrote music and I'm not the same person I was at the beginning of this pandemic. So like, you know, it's going to be an interesting journey and I think I'm, I'm scared of it cause I'm scared to suck at it. But I guess as you know, and I know, like you got to suck first before the good ones. <laughs> Just, you got to get all the shitty ones out of the way before the good ones come. But that seems to be like the thing I resist the most is writing. So I'm going to go with that. Great. Well, and that goes right back to, you know, there's the fear. You're going to run right at it. And there there are amazing original songs on this EP that are coming out. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have too much fear, but just enough to get you there. Just, just enough. Yeah. Yeah. Just enough to have something to carry. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, well, this has been awesome. Do you, uh, I mean, obviously it's super easy to Google Shoshana Bean, but is there anywhere you want to tell people where to get in touch with you? Yeah. My website is always like a great resource for all kind of information, which is just shoshanabean.com. And then I would say of all the socials, I'm the most active on, on Instagram, which is showbean at showbean. Um, and that's where like all the information about virtual shows and all the many causes I am always fighting for and all the, all the updates happen, um, most frequently on Instagram. So between the two, you're well, you're well informed. Awesome. Well, uh, all those things will be in the show notes for people, but thank you so much, Shoshana. This is great. I always love hanging out. So oh, I love you. I miss you so we'll be able much. To hang out in person again one day. I know, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yes, sir. Have a good day. So that's it for episode four yet again. So thanks for listening. Just a reminder that next week we'll officially be starting the second year of the podcast. I guess it's time I decide whether I want to call it season two or not. So it is now officially called season two. So check back next week for the start of all new episodes. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider leaving a review or sharing with your friends. We've all been growing this show together and I greatly appreciate all of you. Also, if you're a Patreon type person, we do have a Patreon set up for the show. There's a link for that in the show notes. And finally, do not forget to join us over at completeproducer.net to join in our conversations over there. So on that, I will see you next week for the start of season two.